Welcome to Communicore Weekly. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. Dive, dive, dive. It's time for Disney History. One of the best attractions ever created for Disney theme parks, at least in my opinion, was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Debuting slightly after Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom first opened its doors in October 1971, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was an e-ticket attraction in Fantasyland that is sorely missed by Disney fans everywhere today. Based on the film of the same name, guests boarded Captain Nemo's submarine, the Nautilus, and traveled under the sea through coral reefs, dark caverns, and right into the clutches of a deadly squid below the ice caps. The submarine voyage over at Disneyland was so popular that it was decided to replicate it for the East Coast theme park. But when wet artists assigned to the project first started hashing it out, they added a new facet. Guests would travel inside replicas of Captain Nemo's Nautilus, making the ride a better fit for its home in Fantasyland. The ride had 12 38 passenger, or 39 if you count the cast member running the thing, but 38 passenger subs which were distinguished by their Roman numeral markings on the outside. Interesting fact, did you know that the submarine you see being attacked by the squid at the end, that had the unlucky number 13 on its side? Mm, that's a good geek fact, we have to remember that one. Mm -hmm. That could be a five-legged goat. Five-legged squid. F sub. Oh, squid, that's even better. Yeah, there we go. Uh, off track. Um, the subs, they, they were built in a shipyard in nearby Tampa, and then brought over on flatbed trucks to Walt Disney World. In fact, when the ride was open, the combined 24 subs that operated at Walt Disney World and at Disneyland Submarine Voyage gave the Walt Disney Company the fifth largest naval fleet in the world. You know, I feel like they could have used that naval fleet for some other purpose. You know, I thought about that. Like, you know, they could have uh, used it to invade another theme park that was water-based in the area, maybe. Of course, then they would have needed a tank attraction and like a bomber ride to attack the other theme parks in the area, but... Blue sky, baby. Blue sky. Blue sky. All right. Okay. Anyway, above the water, the subs were strikingly similar to the Harper Goff-designed Nautilus from the film. At 61 feet in length, they were one-third scale replicas of the full-size version. Below the surface, they were significantly less detailed, with both sides of the hole lined by 20 small portholes for guests to see out during their journey. To the front and rear of these small portholes was a floodlight for illuminating scenery in the ride's open lagoon at night. The submarines were equipped with the drive wheel mechanisms that you would ride atop in an inverted V elevated track, as opposed to the recessed trow like the Jungle Cruise uses. The sets were assembled on site with hundreds of scenic pieces made at Disney's Mapo Division in California and at Florida's staff shop. Nearly everything was produced in duplicate form, so riders on both sides of the submarine would see the exact same scene at the exact same time while inside the massive show building. A series of catwalks and bridges in the show building permitted work crews access to the mechanisms that would animate most of the ride's effects. 
The huge water tank held 11.5 million gallons of water, and it took up 25% of the real estate in Fantasyland. That's a pretty large chunk of property. The ride also shared some animatronics with its California submarine uh, counterpart, borrowing some mermaids and sea creatures to make their East Coast debut. As mentioned earlier, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea didn't open with the rest of the Magic Kingdom on October 1st, 1971. There was a lot of problems with the lagoon's ability to hold water, so that delayed the ride's debut. On October 14th, however, guests began pouring into Nemo subs by the thousands, ready to embark on a trip unlike anything they've ever experienced before. And sadly, the ride closed in 1994, uh, exactly 23 years to the day after it opened. It was the only e-ticket ever to be removed from the park. Uh, there were many reasons given for the closure, uh, like no matter how incredibly popular the ride still was. Constant ride breakdowns, loading difficulties because the subs were not handicapped accessible, long lines, and the difficulty and high cost of maintenance, including keeping the 11.5 million gallons of water clear enough for guests to see through, uh, were just among a few of the reasons. For some time after the attraction closed, the subs remained docked in the lagoon, leaving a glimmer of hope that the ride would be refurbished and reopened. However, the subs were soon removed and the lagoon drained. The subs were made, made off for parts unknown. One used to be located on Disney's Hollywood Studios Backlot Tour. Two of the subs were actually brought to Castaway Key, Disney private island, for exploration by Disney Cruise Line passengers. Pieces of them were even sold at some of the Art of Disney stores on property as late as 2005. Uh, I, I seem to have missed that sale. Uh, Me too. Well, yeah, that's all right. Though the though the ride is gone, guests can still experience the Nautilus for themselves over at Disneyland Paris. Wee oui, wee. Oui. At the uh, Mysteries of the Nautilus walkthrough attraction, but the ride itself will forever live in the hearts and minds of Disney fans everywhere. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Kevin Yee is one of the most prolific Disney authors out there, uh, with over 10 books to his name. And he's also a columnist at Mice Chat. His book, Mousetrap, published in 2008, chronicles the 15 years that Yee spent working at Disneyland in various departments from 1987 to 2002. Subtitled Memoir of a Disneyland Cast Member, Mousetrap is a book that quickly takes you behind the scenes at Disneyland to show you what it was like to work there in the 1990s. As with any memoir, you can expect some dirt, and, and Kevin does come through, but it's not really the dirt you would expect. It isn't about the working conditions or how bad the management was, but it's, it's really about the camaraderie and friendships that were developed. Kevin takes us into the units that he worked in areas and, and describes a typical day including what it was like to check in, get your costume, and get ready for a day of work. Kevin's tenure included Cafe Orleans, when it was the Buffeteria, Le Petit Patisserie, the Blue Bayou, the Underground Employee Cafeteria, the New Orleans Main Kitchen, the French Market, and the Mint Julep Bar. And I was really surprised they didn't name it Kevin Yeeland after that. Um, he, does, he ended his career at Disneyland as a show installer with Entertainment Art. The first part of the book details what it was like to work as a cast member at Disneyland and focuses more on the general idea for what it was like to be a lead and what the job entailed. The middle part shares what it was like to work in the day-to-day -day areas of the park. We meet a lot of Kevin's co-workers and friends and learn a lot about the ins and outs of being a Disneyland employee. 
Some of the best stories were uh, when Kevin would talk about employees getting stuck on elevators or investigating backstage areas. Because there was one part where you had to bring the clam chowder upstairs on an elevator. And if you got stuck on the elevator, you could be there for an hour. So cast members were known to partake of the clam chowder. Uh, if you have any interest in working for the company, then I really do suggest you check out the book. Kevin was very positive about his experiences and relates what it was like to be a Disneyland cast member. I have to admit that I gained a lot more respect for the cast members that make the magic for us. Now that elevator they were stuck in, was yes. that a was that a, a yee ticket attraction? <laughs> I think we're gonna start calling it that from now on. Here's another minute that you can't get back. It's the 60 second review. Well, we received a copy of Brave for the Xbox 360, a preview copy this weekend, and we spent the whole weekend playing it. And when I say we, I've got my eight-year-old son and video game partner with me, and his name's Sumner. So Sumner, tell us, what do you do in the game? Well, uh, you shoot bows and arrows and you swing swords. Also, if you go in the shop, you can buy Dodge or slam attack. Well, what do you actually do in the game? Um, well, you're supposed to battle this evil bear that's in a legend called Mordu, or whatever his name is. You fight him with these four charms, earth charm, fire charm, air charm, and ice charm. Well, why do you have the charms? What do they do for you? Uh, each enemy you fight in the game has a weakness. Okay, like, so you have to use the right charm? Yes. The charm you're... The weakness charm is right above their health bar. So you know which charm to use. Okay. Yes. Well, or what, right above them. Right above them? Because well, some enemies don't have a health bar. Okay. Well, tell us, what was your favorite part of the game? Uh, when you destroyed the first pillar in the last level. Well, why is that your favorite? Because it hurts them. Because it hurts more do? Yes. Okay, so you know you're getting close to the end of the game. Well, tell us, since... Uh, Who's going to like this game? Um, everybody who plays. Jeff, you and me, uh, we already played, so... <laughs> so we know. So we you already like. know you like the game. <laughs> but, but Jeff might like the game, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, is, is this a good game for, like, Jeff and Alex to play together? Yeah. Well, well, if you figured out how to get the Will of the Wisdom. Okay, so it, it is a two-player game, right? Yes. Okay, and then when we played it, I thought it was great because you could play Merida... And I could play the Wisp, and it didn't matter how many times I got killed. Yeah. Yeah, because I got killed a lot. But so. we, we won't tell anybody about that, right? You just did. <gasps> well, then we'll ask another question. <laughs> well, since there's a girl that's the hero of the game, are boys going to like playing this? Are they going to be too, ooh, it's a girl? Yes. You can change Mirlo's outfit to make her look like a boy. Like the two costumes that make her look like the boy. The guard male. And the Yachts and Safeguard. Okay, so it won't be like you're playing a girl, right? No. Although she was pretty cool, wasn't she? Yeah. So are you looking forward to seeing the movie? Yes, very. All right, I am too. Do you think this is a game people should buy, or should they stay away from it? Or are they going to have fun with it? If or when they buy it, they'll what? have lots of fun, and they'll probably just buy it to get the movie ticket. That's true. There is a movie ticket that comes with it if you buy it. So you buy it now, you get a movie ticket with it. That's a good endorsement for it, I think. I think you get so. a game and a free movie. You get a game and a free movie. Ticket. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the game before we jump to the next segment? Mm, well, uh, no. 
<laughs> and I guess that's it for the 60 second review of Brave. And we did play the version for the Xbox 360. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. In the loading area for Dinosaur at Disney's Animal Kingdom, you will notice a lot of pipes. As you descend the stairs to the floor level where you board your Time Rover, take a look at some of the pipes there. You will see three, red, white, and yellow, running horizontally across the room over what happens to be a large electrical transformer. These pipes have chemical symbols on them that are actually the ingredients for ketchup, mustard, and maydays, and a tribute to McDonald's, who is one of the original sponsors of the attraction. And, you know, it's a good thing to point out these little details at the Animal Kingdom because with it being a half-day park, you really got to give something for people to focus on. Incorrect, George, because with these details, it makes it a richer experience, therefore making it a full-day park. Well, we'll have to argue this more. And Get off my show. Thanks. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for watching Jeff's show. Yeah. Be sure to leave me a comment and leave me a rating on iTunes. Uh, well, email him at communicorweekly at gmail.com. Be sure to like me on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Of course, follow him on Twitter at Jeff Heimbuck and follow me too at Imaginerating if you feel so inclined. You don't have to though, it's fine. Yeah, well, I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And we're both from Mice Chat. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week on Communicore Weekly. Canada.